The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Before we get started, we want to tell you a bit about the sponsor of this week's History Extra podcast, Warner Hotels. If you're looking to escape to a picturesque corner of the UK for a few days, Warner Hotels has just the thing for you. Each hotel offers everything you could possibly need for the perfect weekend away. From unrivaled leisure facilities and inspiring live entertainment, to delicious dining experiences and plenty of history for you to uncover. If this sounds like your kind of getaway, Warner Hotels is now offering a series of exciting weekend packages in 2024. Each three-night stay is at one of three historic hotels, with dinner, bed and breakfast included, plus a whole itinerary of fascinating talks and Q&As with a selection of BBC history experts, such as Tracy Borman, Susanna Lipscomb and James Holland. So what are you waiting for? Book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What was it really like to live and fight in a First World War trench? Why was throwing your empty food cans into no man's land a death sentence? And what was the worst care package a Tommy could receive from home? Speaking with Emily Briffitt, historian Peter Hart answers your top questions on life in the front line during the First World War in the latest in our Everything You Want to Know series. Hi, Peter. It's an absolute pleasure to be chatting to you today. Hello, Emily. Nice to be here. Can you describe the trenches to us? Just from the outset, what were they like? It's one of those questions that sound very easy, but are quite difficult in the sense that they change throughout. But if I could describe a classic British trench, it would be about six foot deep, about three foot six wide. It would have a uh, fire step about 18 inches tall and about 18 inches across. That's where people could stand so they could shoot at the Germans, which is a bit rough, but there you go. And in front of the trench, there would be a parapet, which would be three foot tall from the flat earth and about six foot deep because, you know, bullets go through things much more than you think. And then behind, there's a paradox, which is the same. 
So that would be the fundamental trench. They might have an A-frame. They should have wood or chicken wire sort of stuff uh, as uh, revetting to stop them falling in. Because I remember when I was young, they used to always have people getting into workman trenches and they'd collapse and they'd be killed. And my father always used to warn me. And of course, that's what happens if you have a trench. You have to revet it. And so that's, that's what they did. That's a trench of a sort. Now, some of them are just ditches. Some of them are sort of concreted. Some of them are, you know, they, 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 there's a world of difference going on. But that's, in its simplest terms, a frontline trench. So one of our first questions, big contextual question from Neil Eads on Facebook is, how far did the trenches stretch? Where exactly were they? Well, they went from the, uh, the, 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 the North Sea right the way down, down to Switzerland. It's uh, 475 miles, uh, which is a long way if you think about, just think about it. And, and what I really want you to think about is there isn't just one front line. There's also the communication trenches that stretch back. Then there's the, uh, the support lines, which is just the same as the front lines. And then behind that is the reserve lines. So if you just times it by three, that's 1,500. But then you have all the other trenches, and sometimes there's more than one system. So there are thousands and thousands of miles of these six-foot-deep trenches. Just think what that means. Some poor sod has to dig them. And Okay, here's another one then. Nicholas Sergis on Twitter has asked, what was trench warfare like on the Eastern Front? Was it different from the Western Front? In some ways, yes. It's just... It's just bigger. Uh, it, it's the Austro-Hungarian ar- army, uh, the German army and the Russian army just bashing into each other for three or four years of murderous fighting. The trenches are similar, of course. It depends on where you are. So if it's marshy and there were great marshy, then they would be breastworks. They weren't as sophisticated. They weren't as, you know, but the fighting was absolutely murderous and the casualties dwarf. In, in many cases, what happened on the Western Front. If you want to know the length, they stretched from the Baltic uh, to, by the end of the war, uh, the Black Sea, and they ranged, but it depends whether, which way they went, because they move a lot, between 800 miles and, uh, and 1,500 miles. So you can see this is a, a big-scale thing. One thing to remember about the Eastern Front is it's continental Europe. It's cold. So when it comes to wintertime, we think we're suffering on the Western Front. It's much colder, you know, with those Siberian winds rushing across and all the rest of it. So, so, so that's what it was like. Uh, it, it, it is just as bad as the Western Front. We often forget the Eastern Front, but actually you've got to remember it. It's just we're a bit British-centric about things. So this leads me on to my next question that we've had from someone on Instagram. Were any trenches known to be particularly bad to serve in? They've asked, is it true that British trenches were worse living than German ones? Well, it, it, uh, again, I'm going to have to give a, a, a <laughs> struggle with asking historians things. Is they tend to go, well, one hand in. It depends where and when. As a general point, the German trenches are better sighted because they were falling back. They picked where they were. So they will pick a ridge line and have the forward posts on the front, there are nice trenches on the rear, out of sight, uh, and and their reserve lines behind that. And so they will be drier. They, they'll be they'll be better sighted. Uh, the British and French lines tend to be where they got to in advancing up to it, and they tended to be where they were stopped. So they're not as well sighted. Sometimes they'd fall back. Sometimes they'd sap forward, uh, to dig forward and try and get closer. That's basically what what it was like. Uh, so yes, they were, but the, the, I. 
have to say the Germans, as they were in defence, they, they often had time to put more wood in. They'd have lots of revetting. They, their dugouts were better. They'd bring up more home comforts because they were intending to be there for a long time. Whereas British trenches and French trenches had a more temporary feel because we were always going to go on the big push. We were going to advance to victory. Oh, I need time now. Uh, the fact it took three or four years is a, a separate matter. But that sort of explains a bit of that. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about who might we have met if we were to go back in time and go into the trenches. So exactly that, who was stationed in the trenches? Well, everybody at some time or another, if you were in the army and male, female personnel obviously weren't in the trenches. Um, the way they did it, that the British in particular had a fantastic system whereby uh, there a battalion was about a thousand men. There are three or later four battalions in a brigade. There are three brigades in a division. There are four brigades to call. And they circulated them all around like a gigantic jigsaw puzzle, constantly going round and round. So if you... You'd all be in the trenches at some time, but in any given week or month, you wouldn't be in for long. And the, they tried to make it so the maximum time you were in the front line was two or three days. And then you'd go back to the support line, back to the, the reserve lines, then out to rest. And you'd be unlucky if you spent more than 10 days in the line in the whole month. People think people went and lived in the trenches and stayed there for three years. They didn't. They were constantly circulating round. And the idea of it was to, to preserve morale. The idea was so that you'd think, ha, oh, ha, I can go and see that girl in Amiens or I can go and have that pint in, in or not pint, wine or something at the estaminet. It's basically human nature. It gives you something to look forward to. This trench is murder, but in two days or two nights, I'll be out. Uh, you might not be because you might be dead, but at least you've got hope. Now, the Germans and French weren't quite so organised on this, or certainly not in the early stages, and they tended to stay in the line a lot longer, and it does affect morale. So basically everybody was in the trenches, was in the army and in a fighting unit. Well, it's a good question in a sense because, of course, the army's like a triangle and the, 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 the fighting battalions are there. But behind them, they have uh, the army service corps who provided their food and moved everything up. They've got all the people working the railways. They've got all the people in the camps. They've got everybody. Uh, they've got the artillery. They've got loads of people who are not in the front line, but they're all vital, absolutely vital to what happens in the front. I think you've also answered there. We've had quite a few questions about people asking how long and how often were troops on the front line. So Kristen Finch on Facebook, Denise Fairbrother on Facebook, Facebook as well, Guy Bailey on Twitter, lots of people asking that question, so that's perfect. Well, it's good that they ask because it's obvious that they've been thinking about it. And that's to me, that's important that the people engage with history and think, hang on a minute, did they really stay in the front? How long did they stay? Hey, Pete, how long did they stay in the front line? And, and I see why people ask. And uh, when you find out the answer, it's obvious why it's that length of time, that short length. It is to keep people going. Uh, so that's a, that's a good question. So this is a similar one we've heard from Susan Pollitz on Twitter. She's asked, did soldiers stationed in the trenches also serve elsewhere or were they likely to have spent most of their time based around the trenches? It depends where you are. If you're on the Western Front, then it, it, you, you'd, you'd spend a lot of time training 
So they pull you out of the line and you'd be out of the line for two, three weeks and you, there's new weapons to learn. But you have to learn how to use these new weapons. New tactics are coming through all the time. Contrary to what people think, the Great War is a, a really innovative period for tactics and things. They've, they've got to be rebuilt. They've got to get new drafts in from home and rebuild. So if you've had 300 casualties, which is about normally, say, 70 killed and the rest wounded, then all of them have gone. So you've got to replace them. But they have to be built into the system. New officers, new NCOs. So they're, a lot of the time out of the line, they're, they're, they're working on that. The other thing they're doing is working parties, which are they go forward to do all the dirty jobs. Uh, and they moaned like, like hell about it. it they, they, of course they did. So you come out of the line to rest and you think, oh, and then you've got to train. Oh, And then when you finish moaning about training, you sent on a working party, carried up, for instance, how does that wood that revets the trench get to the front? Somebody has to carry it. How does the water, how does everything get forward? The ammunition, the uh, the munitions, they've all got to be carried. And so they, they, they've all got to get on with that. Uh, so so that, that's another thing that they're up to. Uh, and that, So if when you don't think when you're out of the line you're not busy, because you are busy. It's just you're not actually fighting the Germans face-to-face. On the note of training, Vincent Hannon on Twitter has asked about any training to live in the type of conditions, say, that the trenches posed? I mean, Vincent's asked a good question because, you, you, yes, people are trained much more. Back home, they have, in fact, there's archaeologists finding them all over the country. If you go to a local park, in fact, uh, at Clitterhouse Fields, you can see the marks on the ground of trenches, practice trenches that were dug to practice going over the top, to practice brief periods of living in them. They didn't so much live in them because I'll come back to that. But what they did is practice attacking from the practice, the shape of them, practice that sort of... And those things are in the parks. They're in, uh, if you live in London, you can see they were in Hyde Park, all the big parks, Regent's Park, there were trenches that were practice trenches and used by the soldiers. The real way they get used to it is when they come to the Western Front, they have a period of often a month or so where they would be attached to race units that are already there. And if you think about it, that's how it works. So they go in as a sort of platoon or company at a time and be attached to a regiment in the line who would show them what it was like, explain to them, don't put your head up there, you know, just how to live your life in the line. And and then gradually the whole battalion of thousand men would get go through this process and then when they've gone through the process then they're, they're ready to be put in the line and the first time they're in the line it'll be a quiet sector so again there's time that the british army is not stupid that this is the, uh, the the myth so they're introduced to it as best they can but that is again i like that question because it shows people are thinking about about what's going on Another big question we've had is about the Empire troops. So could you tell us a little bit about their role on the front line? Well, I I think their role in the whole war is absolutely crucial. And you've got to realise how important it is. Can I start with the biggest contribution, which was the Indian uh, army, uh, which includes what what we now call India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. But it it was a huge army measured by millions. They they actually arrived, a whole corps arrived on the Western Front. And of course, a lot, uh, you know, two divisions, uh, 30, 40, 50,000 men. And they arrived just in time in about 
about October 1914. And actually, they probably saved the day. I'm not saying without them we'd have lost the war. But for the British Army, they were absolutely crucial. They proved to be good fighting men. So there's no looking down on them. Some people attempt to, but they're, they're, they're being silly. The uh, They didn't like the weather, but can I just... You know, people sometimes say, oh, the Indian Corps, it got cold because it was winter. It was an appalling winter. And the British troops got cold as well. And they moaned. Oh, sorry, they observed. Troops never moan, they only observe. And it, it that, that's the, 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 the Indian contribution was, was immense. And then later on, they were sent, most of them, not the cavalry, most of them were sent away to serve in Palestine and, and in Mesopotamia. And there they are, the, 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 they're the backbone of the force. And uh, both of those campaigns are ultimately successful. So that you, could, you, can't, you can't deny the importance of the Indian army within the British Army. And then, if you talk about Empire troops, uh, I think we ought to talk about the Australians and New Zealanders. And they are acknowledged as, uh, if not elite formations, and they were certainly regarded as that <laughs> by themselves, most of all, but also by everybody else, i.e. the British, the Germans, you know, everybody who takes an interest. They took a while to learn, but by the time you get to 1917, 1918, the, the Anzacs are, are a brilliant, as an Australian New Zealand Army Corps, which later became the New Zealand Division and the Australian uh, Corps. They're, they're brilliant and they are treated as an elite, as a cutting edge uh, and, and they are actually reserved by uh, Field Marshal Haig as an elite force to, to strike back when they could. So they, they do brilliantly and, and uh, the other ones are the Canadians who, the Canadian Corps is brilliant. They are absolutely brilliant and they are alongside the Australians and New, New Zealanders and the best of the British divisions as the sort of elite forces. They really are good. They're really good. They're well-led. They've got uh, good generals and, and they're fabulous. And so altogether, the Empire troops, and there are many other countries make small contributions, but I don't want to get into a list and also my memory will fail me. They make an, a fantastic contribution on the Western Front and, and everywhere else in the war. They are super important. Time for another quick chat about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you want to get away in 2024, why not book a weekend package at one of Warner's most historic hotels? There's Little Coat House, which is a stunning Tudor manor in Hungerford, Studley Castle, a beautiful 19th century building in Warwickshire, or Home Lacey, a huge Herefordshire mansion that was once visited by Charles I. Whichever location you choose, you'll be able to enjoy a whole weekend of live talks from your favourite historians during your stay. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. 
Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. What was that experience of the war like? Was this different at all from British troops? And did it vary on where in the empire they were from or where they were actually fighting? Um, well, it, it varies where they're fighting as to whether it's hot or cold. And the different, I mean, places like Gallipoli, Mesopotamia, which I hadn't mentioned where the Anzacs were, and Mesopotamia and Palestine, they're riddled with dysentery. The dysentery is just everywhere, and it's awful. Uh, and other uh, paratyphoid, other diseases, they have a very rough time. They've got lots to, to think about there, never mind the Turks, who were their main enemy in those fronts. Uh, on the Western Front, they have pretty well the same service conditions. There are minor differences in diets that the Indian troops get while they're there. But they're, they're just, they're, they are cultural differences in diet which are accommodated in some part, not always entirely. They, they talk a lot about mateship within, the, and, and I think this is partly because they're, they're still dominions, they're still part of the British Empire. But the writings on the wall, they're, they're going to be independent nations. And there's a pride, a right, a, a right, you know, and rightly so, a pride in their achievements. There's a feeling of comradeship and mateship. They just got a tremendous pride in their country and what they've achieved. And, and the, when, when people say, oh, the Canadians are different, they're more manly than the British soldier, and, and sort of 60% of them are, are British born. And uh, that it's worth it. And the same with the Australian. Of the first lot who go to Gallipoli, I think 27% not only were uh, British born, but they were adults when they came to Australia. So unless they sort of grew six inches and became much more muscular the moment they stepped off the ship, they're just the same. People often wonder, are they treated differently? Are the Canadians treated differently from the Indians? Are the Australians treated? Are the New Zealanders treated differently? And the answer to that is uh, they're treated differently by each other. Because the one thing to remember about soldiers is it's not just people from different countries that they look down on and in askance at. For instance, they'll always accuse the French or the British or the Canadians of not having clean trenches, clean latrines. Doesn't matter. But it's not just that. I mean, for instance, the British will accuse Northerners or Scots or people from southern, I mean, South Londoners. It, it, it's basically part of that competition that's endemic in the British Army. Is there more active and uh, an unpleasant, what I would define as racism? Well, the answer to that in those days is probably yes. Some of it's unconscious, some of it's deliberate. The shocking example is the treatment of the Chinese labour force, which is outrageous. But I, I am not the one to ask about that because I've never studied it. But I am aware that we did not treat them very well or uh, and treated them in a, there's no two ways about it, in a racist and appalling manner. Right. Now, to go back into the experience of life in the trenches, did they take shifts? When they're on the front line, so if they're in, during the two or three days, the day has a, a pattern. And uh, each man will be given various jobs at various times. Uh, for instance, they're all up at, uh, at dawn, usually, where, where daybreak, uh, where they, they have what's called stand two. Now, stand two, guess what? They all stand two with their weapons to hand. Not, not you know, not it's over there, sir to hand and they'll be inspected make sure they've got ammunition they're ready because early in the war that's when people attacked at dawn later on they attack anytime they like uh, but 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 stand to then after that they have different duties that spend their day they're all in the front line area but they've got duties so there'll be sentries 
Now, sentries, uh, uh, they, they, they use periscopes, so sometimes they just peer over the top. So they're, they're there, um, they're there throughout the day and throughout the night. And then there are lots of people on carrying parties going back at night, for instance. They go back to get the rations. Then there are people who uh, uh, are doing re- trench repairs, uh, digging out the drainage, because guess what happens to ditches? They fill with water. What you have to do, you have to drain them. So you put down, you dig drains, you dig some poles, which people fall into, which is amusing, but uh, never mind. Uh, and you, you put down duck fords. And people, you know, a German shell comes and smashes it up. You have to sort it out. German shell smashes down your, uh, your parapet. You've got to repair it carefully because they might shoot you while you're doing it. And then at night, there are other tasks, like you have to go out and put barbed wire out. So there's lots of things that they have to do. So in the sense of Shifts? No, there's not. They're not on and off duty. They're, they're basically all attending to these various things, and 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 then they get to sleep, I suppose, at night. Uh, yeah, those that aren't doing the carrying party or anything else. So another sort of similar but slightly different question from Adrian Smith on Facebook, who has asked, "How much time would a regular soldier spend in combat, and how long would they perhaps spend waiting to be attacked or attack themselves?" This, this is an, a, another interesting aspect because it's not like you think. The, there's a, a well-known historian, and that's a man called Gordon Corrigan, and he pointed out that the British Army spent more time playing football than it did going over the top. And now that's obvious because a, a football takes an hour and a half and going over the top doesn't take very long and doesn't take any time if you're killed. G- Gordon's point is a serious one. It is that the average soldier would only attack or be attacked a couple of times in the whole of their trench experience. Now, that is not a hard and fast rule, and obviously it depends how long you're in for. But in your two or three days in the trenches, you are unlikely to attack and unlikely to be attacked. Uh, it's more just just occasional losses through shell fire, sniping, that kind of thing. That That's what causes the problem there. When they are attacked, though, and there's a, film, there's a play and film called Journey's End, which shows before the big German attack of 1918, it's the most tense and horrible experience there can be. Uh, it's unbelievably awful for people to cope with because they know it's coming and uh, they know the Germans will cut them off with shell fire, and, and that, that is a, a nightmare experience. With that in mind, Jeff Cunningham on Twitter has asked... How did soldiers on the front pass their free time? Well, the free time they had would normally be at night or, or in between the sergeant coming around and telling them to do their, you know, their, go and f- dig that out, do that, whatever. Uh, a lot of them would just spend it uh, drinking tea. They made a fixation, the British Army still does, of hot, sweetened tea. They'd drink that all the time. They'd write letters home and read letters. It was That's incredibly important to people. I mean, we don't write letters anymore, but in those days, that was, that was you, did, you never knew, you might never hear from your girlfriend or your, your parents again. So it was incredibly important. As, and they'd write home. The, the letters are staggeringly dull. Hope this finds you as it leaves me in the pink. It's what 90% of them read. But then there are some that are wonderful uh, authors. And uh, so, so they do that. Uh, they talk. They talk about almost anything but the war. Anything, anything but the war. So they talk about what would you have to eat? (laughs) 
Or I'd have steak and kidney pie. (laughs) And and they, they imagine these fantastic meals. But they talk about anything and everything to keep their minds off off the topic. And the other thing they do is sleep because they were tired. It's only two or three days, but it is a tiring two or three days and stressful. You've picked up on so many little bits that I want to ask you about there. So I'm going to start by just a really general question. Can you give us an overview? What was living in the trenches actually life and how did it change throughout the war? The, the actual physical, it just depends, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to, to say. I mean, in, in 1914, when the first trenches were, they were ditches. They were, in fact, they were often farmers. Do you know the ditches around the farmer's field? Perhaps with a hedge in front of it. And they, 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 the Germans have got a trench in front, say at the Aisne or somewhere, and they take cover, they get into the, the ditch, and then they can't get any further forward, so they start, they dig a communication cable back, they connect up the posts, and that's a trench. But it's still primitive. Now, later on, it gets to the stage I described earlier, so I don't need to do that again. But later on in the war, they start to get concrete pillboxes, concrete, uh, reinforced concrete bits. Often they have uh, places they can sleep, uh, underground, awful places that are probably, uh, some of them still exist in the Eep sector. They're awful. You don't, they're, they're terrifying. And, uh, and so life does change. Some things don't change. I'm sure we're going to come back to things like that, but you can pick up on, if you like now, uh, things like food. But yeah, we've had several questions about this from what was the soldier's diet like? What do they eat? How do they even cook? The, the British Army provide you with a fantastic diet if you don't like food, uh, <laughs> enjoying food. I mean, funnily enough, I'm, I'm not interested in food either. Uh, so I don't suppose I'd suffer. But it's basically 4,000 calories so not good for the figure, and so but you're burning it up, and it can be brought up as stews and the rest of it. But normally it's tinned, and when I say tinned, I mean tinned food. Some of it, like I'm not, I'm going to mention a name here, but it's it's almost generic. Fray Bentos, Fray Bentos corned beef, then as now, uh, the little tins with the keys on. The soldiers they even told me, because I used to be an interviewer for the woman, they told me how. <laughs> They used to be opening the tin and they'd, the key always comes off, so they'd use their 18-inch bayonet. I still remember one pointed to a great gash on this thing said, well, how many time I was wounded in four years of the war? <laughs> Bloody tin, tin blood. But the thing about bully beef is corned beef, uh, which is very salty, not particularly appetising. It's all right. Not every day, though. It gets very boring. What else do they have with it? Well, it's fantastic. They have, uh, I mean, it's almost like a, they have uh, dog biscuits. They look like dog biscuits, extremely nutritious, good for you, not good to eat. They had uh, salted bacon in tins, which they could fry up, and then they'd use the, the lard, the fat, uh, other things. They had something called McConaughey's, which is a sort of lamb and vegetable. And they'd have pork and beans. And they always said they're bloody good, good, bloody good at camouflage, that pork, because I've never found any bloody pork in the beans. <laughs> Little tiny square. Baked beans, haricot beans. They called them haricot beans and baked beans. Those things again and again and again. And even if you got hot food, it could well be bully beef stew. Your only way of warming it was with a, a Tommy cook- cooker, which is a lot, it's the same as you get in camping. Little methylated spirit thing with a sort of block that you can burn. Heat, heat just heats something up a bit. It's not it's not cooking, it's warming, warming through. And they're pretty unpleasant. McConaughey's especially was unpleasant unless you warmed it through. So I'm told. And so that's 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 what they had to eat. The problem is not that they were hungry, 
The British soldier does not go hungry. But uh, they, they get the same. And also, remembering trenches aren't just on the Western Front. So guess what bully beef's like in winter? It's cold. Guess what it's like at Gallipoli in 90 degrees? You pour it out of the can, a mixture of glutinous, ugh, horrible, oily, meaty, yuck. And uh, with flies buzzing around going, ooh, that's nice, I like that. <laughs> you know? uh, and it's not so good for the soldiers. So it's not that they weren't fed properly. They were. It's the, the sheer boredom. And you have loads of people saying, I'll never eat bully beef as long as I live. And they didn't, a lot of them. They just said, nope, no. That. So, so that's basically what they ate. And it's the repetitiveness of it. The, the, and that's why they'd talk, oh, I'd, I'd love to have a steak kidney pie. Oh, me, I'd like a lovely omelette. No, you know, whatever. So that's their diet. 4,000 calories, you see, a day. And then, of course, they had to bring up the water. They, they drank most of their water as tea. But they loved it. And, and they, they always said you could stand it. It was so strong with so much sugar. And they used to have condensed milk. And uh, it was appalling drink. <laughs> they loved it. Fair dues. Uh, so that's what they had to eat. And, and that's a big part of life in the trenches. It's just waiting for the next meal. Bit of bacon for breakfast. Bully beef for, for dinner. Bully beef for for tea yeah. and what do you get for your pudding you know pudding not really anything what about sleep where did people sleep again it depends when and where a lot of the time it, and what what time of year if it's winter the ordinary soldier would burrow out a little hole a cubby hole they called them in the side of the trench the side of the germans so that a shell didn't come in start and they just huddle in there sat just behind the, the and perhaps two of them to keep warm together because uh, they had their, their blanket and waterproof sheet. And that's where a lot of them were. Uh, in summer, they'd often sleep on the fire stem, just lying on the fire stem. The officers would have a dugout, if, if you could dig out, if it didn't flood. That was also a joint headquarters, so that would, that, that would have a, a little side room where the, the officers would sleep. And they'd have a, a bit of a bed or, or a homemade bed. The officers had better conditions because they would have a, a servant. There. And they were called servants then. Uh, the Second World War term is Batman. Uh, but uh, the reason they had them is because they're meant to look at the, the officers are meant to look after the men. The batman or off, a servant looks after the officer, but some officers don't look after the men well enough, and that's why that's when people get a bit mouthy about it. Uh, a good officer will look after his men, and that that's their priority. That's all that matters to them, and uh, the, their servant will look after them. But they, they, they don't live the life of a luxury, and their food is pretty well the same. Later on in the war, moving on again, they, they had these great underground dugouts, uh, especially in a place like Ebes, and they're just wire beds and, and uh, I mentioned earlier, terrifying, dank, dark, often captured from the Germans. They were just awful places, awful. Some of them are still there. So, uh, so that, that's, uh, that's fundamentally where they slept. If they weren't being woken up to go out on a carrying party or woken up to go into no one's house to put wire out or do a, a, a patrol or a raid, or there's so many things that could happen. We've had another question here about how strongly was the sentiment of lions led by donkeys actually felt on the front? Not at all, as far as I know. I appreciate uh, certain of the generals, particularly Haig, who was the finest commander-in-chief the British Army ever had. Not necessarily the finest general, I make that clear. And who, under his uh, direction, not he, he didn't invent it, they came up with the all-arms battle, which in the end would uh, win the war. However, a lot of it is people writing in the 1930s 
the anti-general thing was, to, to a large extent, caused by two very prominent politicians. Never make an enemy out of a politician, Emily. Uh, and particularly if their name's Lloyd George and Winston Churchill, two of the finest politicians we've ever had. Brilliant at their job. Wrong in every single case of every strategy and tactic they ever wanted to do. And uh, the moment Haig died, <laughs> they tore into him in their memoirs and people pick up on it. And then that, that it, it's a 1930s thing, Lion said by donkeys, and no one ever said it. It was uh, another conservative politician, Alan Clark, who invented it to put in a book in the early 1960s. It, it's not, obviously, obviously some people did hate the generals. They hated them as a sort of generic class. And do you know what? I understand that. I used to hate my high up bosses, the ones I never met because they were distant figures who affected my life. And in case of the First World War, they ended your life. So, of course, you didn't like some generals, but you didn't know anything about them or anything about it, in fact. You were just being human uh, and reacting as humans do by just hitting out at people who influence your life and you can't influence theirs. And that's where the origin of it comes. But the generals were generally fairly competent and although they made mistakes, people forget, and this is just a, a point I want to quickly make, we often say the generals killed our men. I'd, they didn't. They talk about the learning curve. It's not one curve. Because they say, why don't they go faster? Why don't the generals do better, quicker? It's because there's two curves. There's the German curve as well. So if you invent something, say the tanks, and the Germans invent pillboxes, you're sort of going up and down like this. And that's why, you know, something that works tactically on Tuesday doesn't necessarily work on Friday and that's the point and and the generals had to overcome this that's why I keep saying well it's all changed since 1914 it's all changed since 16 it's all changed since 18 and that's part of that 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 thing so there wasn't a tremendous objection there was the usual moaning and I would never say there wasn't so on a similar note Joe Pierce on Twitter has asked did those in leadership positions actually do anything perhaps to boost morale they tried to. Sometimes they'd organise parades and speak to the men. This was counterproductive. That does cause a lot. Because there's nothing worse. Again, if you use your workplace, if the director general calls you in and gives you a speech about how you're all loving it and sadly you've got to have a 5% pay cut, but you're all happy. It's exactly the same. And and the, the generals would call them in and say, we're going over the top and you're, you'll be delighted to know that the first Worcestershire's are over the top first. And the lads would go, oh. More positively... Officers generally tried to keep the men busy. There's a, a long-standing belief that if the British soldier, this is slightly um, apocryphal, if you don't keep the British soldier busy, they'll get drunk and cause trouble. Now, there is some truth in that. It can be exaggerated, but the best thing to do is to keep them busy. And the, the way they used to do it is, has, has never changed. It, they still do it. They did it in Iraq and Afghanistan. Sport. Tire them out, give them sport, get the games of football, incredibly competitive, company versus company, battalion versus battalion, regiment versus brigade versus brigade. And they set up these huge things. They'd have sports days. They'd set up that kind of thing. The other thing is, of course, and we've already dealt with it, so I'm only going to say it, they moved them in and out of the line. They made sure they weren't in the line too long so that they'd have rest. And they made sure that they got leave and the letters from home. So there is a whole system to to keep the men as happy as they could be in the awful situation of being in a frontline infantry unit 
Uh, it's got to go in the trenches next Tuesday, sort of thing. Holly Dolly Duda on Instagram has asked about postal services. How do they work? How did men send letters and how did they get them? Postal services are incredibly efficient. They're, they have three systems. One is just a card. I, I am well. I am, I am, you know, I've been wounded. I have not been wounded. I'm for, just a card. And they would send them back just to reassure that after, say, an attack. Then they'd have letters that were censored. And they were censored by the officer of the unit, so normally the second lieutenant, who were inevitably incredibly rude about the, <laughs> the men. And uh, there's all sorts of stories about that. And it's a very Serrano de Bergerac for things where people are writing for, to girlfriends for each other and, <laughs> and telling what a good line is. To, so that's all going on. Uh, but most of the lads are just writing home to mum and dad. Remember how old they are? British soldiers tend to be between 18 and 22. A lot of them aren't married. Uh, they haven't got girlfriends, so, you know, so they write. They're writing to the parents. Letters home. They're they're, they're unbelievable. And Pitt, when you look go through the archives, the Department of Documents at the War Museum has an amazing collections, and you go through them, and you see people writing back. Uh, and if they write it to their mum, they they'll say, "Oh, uh, mum, every, everything. Hope this finds me. You know, um, everything's fine. Everything's great." And there's a great example I once uncovered of a letter, a letter she. He wrote to a mum and to his best mate. And the, to the mum, he says, oh, I'm out of the line. I'm completely safe. To best mate, said, hey, it's murder. We were all nearly killed yesterday, and we've got to go on the attack tomorrow. I don't know how I can survive another day. This is the worst experience of my life. And he was killed next day. And that's the, the thing. Depends who you write to. And letters, I mean, if you write it to your mum or your girlfriend, you don't tell them about, say, if you're in Gallipoli, you don't tell them about dysentery. But um, when you're writing home to, to or in your diary or doing things like that, you, you do put what happened. And, and it was interesting, oral history brought out how much that wasn't in letters about, about dysentery and things like that. So um, the third layer of letters were, were green envelopes, which were uncensored in your unit. So your officer, they might be censored back home. And if you were caught, putting anything about where you were and what, what you were doing in them, you'd be really for it. But they weren't censored by your second lieutenant. And you might want to write something personal. I, I don't, you know, uh, to, to the wife or girlfriend in that or whatever. Or you just might not want the officer to read it. The letters would then come so they'd go out with a postman, each battalion of the postman, and they'd come back in and they'd be handed out. Even in the line, they'd get their posts and they'd go and, as I mentioned, they'd read them right, right back. Some of them wrote daily. Uh, throughout the time they were out there. Uh, so it's an amazingly efficient postal service. That's a, a, good, a good question. I like that people are thinking about the nitty-gritty of it. A very similar question from Melissa Darby on Twitter. She's asked, did they receive care packages from home? And how essential were these? Not really. Some regiments organised things to be sent out, but mostly it's families. And uh, there's, there's one wonderful story of somebody who sent a, 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 just a parcel, and uh, you know, and they sent it out to Gallipoli. And I still remember this. I put it in one of my books, and they, they sent out a, sort of some socks and some some a cake and something. And in the middle of it, before they sent it from England to Gallipoli, which is two thousand miles away, they put a bunch of bananas. And the bloke said that it had sort of turned into some sort of thing from Dante's Inferno and that even the socks had surrendered to the general dissolution but, but the point was you, they'd send things out and more sensible families would send things out that were they're, they're cakes sweets sweets cigarettes 
Newspapers from home, that was popular. So they'd get them. Uh, but it was normally your family that, that would do it. And it was tradition that you'd share everything with your mates. You, there's no squirreling away and eating that big thing of sweeties to yourself. No, no, you, you, or big cake. You, you shared it and you shared each other's. And that, that's how it worked. MHFQ on Instagram has asked, did any inventions come out of life within the trenches? What, what happened was a need was felt and that need was answered by inventions. Uh, for, for one thing is the periscope, obviously, which is just a child's toy, became important for looking and seeing what's over there. And then somebody, for instance, at Gallipoli, the trenches are very close together. So if you stuck your head up to, to shoot someone, they shot you. So they put a, a rifle connected to a periscope so that you aimed the periscope and then fired the rifle from below. We needed uh, mortars, which are uh, things that go fire up and go down. They've not got a long range. They go oop and down. Uh, so they invented something called a Stokes mortar, different sorts of hand grenade. Lewis gun, they needed a light machine gun instead of the heavy Vickers machine gun. So they would respond to that kind of need. It's not so much, with the exception of the periscope rifle, they tend not to be invented by somebody in the trench going, oh, <laughs> they tend to be more, somebody says we need this and, and they sort of work it out back home. Paul Orton on Facebook has asked, what was the biggest cause of injury to soldiers in terms of armaments? It's not machine guns. It's not bullets even. You can't tell a machine gun bullet from a rifle bullet. Then together they cause 39% of casualties. The RAMC did an analysis of casualties. 39% were bullets of various sorts. And then 58% were shells. Now, that's, that's a high explosive shrapnel, which is bullets projected out of the exploding shell uh, and gas. It's mainly shrapnel and explosions, uh, and that's 58%. Then 2% were hand grenades, and 0.32 was the rest. I mean, gas within that is, uh, is very small. Gas was to make you put your gas mask on, and then you can't quite hear properly outside. You've got a, a thing over your eyes, uh, so you can't see properly, and your breathing's restricted. So when you try and, say, load a gun big 5.9-inch gun or 18-pounder gun, it's, it's difficult. You run out of breath. You can't hear the orders of command. And, and, and it's just you are unable to carry out your functions as a soldier properly. And that's why they put gas down, to render you useless. If you kill you, that's, uh, that's good as well uh, for their pr perspective. But what, that's not what they're trying to do. That's later on in the war when they've all got gas masks. The main killer is artillery gunfire and that's relentless you're only exposed to machine guns if you wander about in flippant way of saying going into attack or you're caught and say a wiring party or a raid in no man's land then machine guns will do you but even then if a battery of 5.9 inch german guns open up on you they'll kill you far more certainly than a machine gun gareth reese collins on twitter has asked okay when during periods of deadlock when neither side was advancing or going over the top how safe or dangerous was daily life in the trenches what were the main risks depends where you are and what's happening how close you are to the enemy it, it's a good question though it it it's you, you you're never free of risk from artillery if some gunner back behind the german lines decides to just adjust the dial a bit more that way that could be the end of you so the shell fire is constant and and a shell could land in a, a trench that the trenches i forgot to mention are in bays so separate bays so that if a shell lands it only kills those in that bay 
But it, it depends who's in that bay, or, or perhaps if a high explosive crashes into a dugout that's full of people. That that is the main risk. But sniping. Now, sniping is a concealed German or British, but let's take it as a German sniper who uh, who has a, a is in a hidden position and waits for you to to, to expose yourself whether it be looking over the top or actually I'm quite tall, I'm 6'4", and people at my height, when they walk, their head goes up and down and they used to put a bullet through the top of your head. It's horrible to think of. And they'd see you bouncing and they'd aim to the next point and fire just as your head reached that point. That's, snipers weren't that popular or with either side, both on their own side and the other, because it's a cold-blooded business, but it's all part of making war. So they're the um, and machine guns. If you're looking over the top and a machine gun happens to traverse by, uh, they happen to be firing, then they'll get you. But snipers are sort of more individually deadly. But it's not that many. And and if you look at the statistics, if you're in a quiet sector, it's you know you're in for two days. You might have one casualty and not necessarily dead. Uh, if you're in the Ypres sector or the Somme or poor old French with lots of rough sectors, then you could have you could be just be unlucky and you could have 10 or 20 casualties. You could have more. Those are the main risks. And, of course, you could get gassed, which may not kill you, but if you get a whiff of it, then it can it can give you uh, severe problems with your throat and, and things that demand you being taken back as a casualty. Julie Christie, too, on Facebook has asked, is it true that more soldiers died from disease rather than combat? Now, uh, one thing about uh, people think uh, loads of people die of disease, but actually troops were just as healthy as you might expect. They had a good diet. uh, And funnily enough, that that people joke that the outdoor life didn't seem to do them any harm. When they have a a real freeze, well, obviously, there is a risk of exposure, but very few people die of it. Uh, Where they died is in Gallipoli and Mesopotamia, where people died of a, a, a horrid cocktail of diseases based on dysentery, but also including typhus uh, and a thing called soldier's heart, which is basically where you, you, you get disordered action of the heart because your body's in such a state and, and your heart says, stop this for a game of soldiers, literally, and uh, and uh, you don't die. But some people do, but not a lot. So so the answer is that you get, that, that you get ill, but most people don't die of it unless they're unlucky. Uh, and I, I want to make it quite clear that people did die. People got pneumonia, uh, you know. Pe- and of course, the, the great flu epidemic, uh, influenza, which uh, in COVID days is for, has a, a real echo for us. But uh, pe- th- thousands of people died of uh, influenza. Of all of the things, uh, influenza was the real killer. For the rest of the time, the soldiers were fundamentally healthy. They They were really in good nick. Were they unhappy and cold and wet? Yes. There is a one disease that, that, that might trench fort. You, you've got a question about trench fort, I think. Someone's asked, can you explain what it is, what are the causes and effects? And basically, just tell us a bit more about trench fort. I always think it's like when you stay in the bath for too long. When you were young and you stay in the bath, you just don't go spongy almost. It, it, except it's not funny. It's, it's, it's having your feet in freezing cold water for hours and hours and hours. And you get a sort of sponginess that goes dead and then you start to get frostbite. Your, your toes go black and then they fall off. Uh, trench feet is perfectly stoppable. Uh, you can stop it in its tracks, so to speak. It's an unfortunate uh, expression. By change of uh, dry socks, putting dry socks on a 
putting your feet somewhere not in the water. However, that's impossible, say, in 1914 in the Western Front, where you're in a ditch with no drainage. And if you stand, don't stand in the water, the Germans will put a bullet through your head because you'd be above the... The, the low trenches. So it's basically just freezing cold water and constant immersion in it. There was a cure that was practical, which is that you rub your feet in whale oil. Now, I often wondered who, which genius first thought of this whilst thinking about whales. So I'll just rub some whale oil on my feet and see if it stops them from getting trenches. Whatever. But it does work. And one of the ways that the headquarters could tell if a unit was any good was by the trench, after 1915, was the amount of trench feet. So they've got trench feet, they've got poor discipline, they weren't using whale oil. The other disease is uh, pyrexia of unknown origin. And pyrexia means fever. It means you've got a fever, but they don't know what caused it. They now think it was caused by lice, because uh, they're, they're all living on top of each other, so to speak, and they get lice in the clothes. Once you've got the lice and the bites from a the lice, they thought give you uh, uh, this fever. But that, again, doesn't kill you. It just makes you poorly. Perhaps we should talk about sanitation, um, I think. Very good point to move on to, actually. This is something we've had questions about as well. Um, people asking, were there any methods put in place to keep trenches hygienic is probably the wrong word, but sanitation is probably the right way to go with that. They tried. They had people, but they, they, every every battalion would have sanitary personnel. The, the things they most watch for are one latrine discipline, there was a set latrine, uh, which was not nice, uh, often just uh, cross things and a, a pole between them, that's in Gallipoli a lot, or, or just a, a, almost a bucket arrangement. So, uh, so, th- so that's how they tried, and they tried to drain them. That's the main sanit- uh, So they, uh, they'd use A boards, they'd use duck boards, they tried sumps, uh, which people fell in. That's which I find very amusing when they do fall in. And so they, they do make an effort, but fundamentally it's quite difficult. Louis Palou on Instagram has asked, were there any psychiatric symptoms particularly prevalent in soldiers who fought in the First World War and and in particular in the trenches? The answer is no. We used to call it shell shock. Shell shock doesn't exist. It's a collation of symptoms, which we would now recognise as being post-traumatic stress, PTSD. And this is caused by a variety of things, mainly stress. It's not that people used to think it was a concussive effect of explosions, but mostly it's stress. And it could be anything. Do you know, people, people would have been, they'd, they'd stammer, obviously, you can imagine. Uh, but some were struck mute. Some, some couldn't hear anything. Somehow they lost their sense of hearing. It's their brain. Uh, some became blind couldn't see they they're uncontrollable defecating in public behaving in a complete like a complete drunk all sorts of symptoms and it was very real indeed and it was accepted as so very early on in the war there were some awful things like officers are more prevalent to it because they're more sensitive so you get things that you do not recognise as being true. Uh, poets are more sensitive, you know, they're more likely to get shot. No, it, it just depends what's happened to you and how stressed you are and, and, and how you've been able to respond to it. Because uh, I don't think any of well, certainly I, I couldn't have stood up to any of it. So, yes, there are terrible psychiatric symptoms. I've got a book where a bloke reckoned he could cure any of them and did cure them at Malta by hypnosis. Because mm. they were in the hospitals until the 1960s, some of them. Completely institutionalised. Of course, once you're in for 20 or 30, 20 years or so, you're institute. You, you can't live a normal life anyway. So it was a terrible thing. I'm not saying that 
it was handled well all the time because it wasn't. But mostly it was understood by doctors and they tried to get people out, get them rested, and they would try and get them back as well. <laughs> That's... Now I've got two final questions for you and these are both about public perceptions of life in the trenches. So first off, Naomi Warwick on Facebook has asked, what is the biggest myth surrounding life in the trenches? Well, the biggest myth is definitely about generals, about generals being incompetent, about them being chateau generals and back out of the line. It is not true. The generals were, were back at, they were at chateaus of big buildings because they had a big staff. They were there because that's the, the nodal point of communications. And that's where, it, if you're in the front line, you can't control anything. However, just to put this in context, uh, uh, there were four lieutenant generals commanding, that's a, commanding a corps, which is something like 60,000 men, 12 major generals, that's commanding a division, that's 12 to 18,000 men, and 81 brigadier generals, that's uh, three to 4,000 men, were, 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 uh, were, were killed not wounded. There was another 146 wounded or prisoners of war. Now, the myth, it's not just about Haig, it's that all generals uh, are sort of incompetent buffoons. But I'd like to make another point. I want you to think about this. Those generals, I mean, I'm old now, I'm 68. Those generals weren't anywhere near as old as I am. They're in their 50s. A lot of the brigadiers are in their 40s or even younger. The, the youngest was uh, about 22. The ones that were, say, people like Haig or, or Rawlinson or Robertson, do you know what? They weren't always old. And uh, funnily enough, if you might, you might put this on the word. Hey, D Douglas Haig, as a young 22-year-old, was drop-dead gorgeous. He looked gorgeous. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? He was a young second lieutenant, then he was a captain. He was, he was, uh, he was involved in uh, a cavalry charge at Omdurman. He was nearly cut off by uh, the other side. And then he fought his way through the Boer War, where the Boers will certainly kill you as soon as they look at you. Uh, and this is the same for all the generals. They just happen to... They're, they're frozen in time in some people's mind. Frozen in time as old buffers, General Melchit, whatever... But they weren't always like that. They've got a lifetime of experience, and they personally not only risked their lives in the First World War, but had risked their lives in the Sudanese or Boer War or any of those other Indian campaigns that, that could be terrible if you were on the wrong end of it. I think this perfectly brings us on to our last question, which is from Guy Avney on Facebook. So, putting jokes aside, how accurate were the trenches and bunkers in Blackadder Goes Forth? Well... I love Blackadder, uh, but, but that because it's fantastic TV show. It's funny. I think the trenches look and the dugout looks reasonably accurate, and it's an officer's dugout. That's not where the men are. Uh, I, I think that's a reasonable representation. The trenches are reason. It's roughly in proportion. They've had some good advice. Where it's wrong is that is that they're there all the time, and that's part of that myth. They're there all the time, so they're always in their dugout. They're always there. That would not be the case. They'd be in there for two or three days and then out. And the view, we've already covered the general. Melchit would be a particularly bad general. <laughs> that's not, and that's not fair uh, representation. But Blackadder was wonderful. And, uh, you know, I always like to think that uh, their view of uh, Blackadder's view of the Royal Flying Corps has a, an element of truth when, you, you know, the, the, the 50 minutes or whatever it is, and, uh, you know, Lord Flashhard and all the rest of it. But, it, 
you can imagine what a young second lieutenant or, or, or a sergeant in the trenches thought as he looked up and saw them flying about above them. So some of it has truth in it there. But the other thing is, it, it's not all true. Do, do we think Game of Thrones is, is some sort of truth? It isn't. It, and Blackadder is just fa- fabulous comedy. Just enjoy it as a comedy and, and enjoy the jokes. That was Peter Hart. Peter is a historian and the author of military history books surrounding the First and Second World Wars. And he's also worked as an oral historian at the Imperial War Museum. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Before you go, one final word about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you fancy a break in 2024, you can now choose from three fantastic weekend packages at some of the most historic Warner hotels. For instance, Littlecote House is set in a stunning location in Hungerford, which has played host to Romans, a civil war army and the planning of the D-Day landings. Meanwhile, Studley Castle in Warwickshire was used as a training camp for the Women's Land Army during the World Wars. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk.